Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Welcome to the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula One. We have a special presentation for you today. Joining you, as always, is myself, Mr. Mark Hamilton, my co-host, Mr. Mark Daly, but we also have a special, special co-host, Mr. Tim Brady of TSN and the Racing Pod podcast. We've got a great show for you today. We just finished watching the Monaco Grand Prix. It's a race that doesn't typically have a ton of hype going into it, but boy, was today's race eventful for a number of different reasons before we get to it mr daly mr harini how the heck are you good good i'm really good i'm pumped up i mean not only was it monaco today it was the indy 500 so i mean my cup uh, runneth over which i guess considering the weather in monaco today is kind of appropriate yeah yeah me too i mean a lot of racing on today which is awesome i mean literally just got done speaking with uh marcus erickson who uh won uh the indy 500 i mean that was a great race i i mean if we have time at the end, we need to talk about this. I'm definitely talking in about it on my podcast, but uh, it was an awesome race. I don't know if you guys caught it all. like Just a little bit. I mean, it's great to see Marcus win. I mean, of course, Marcus raced in Formula One for a number of years, so there's another kind of a cool crossover there. But uh, I'm still trying to catch up on that one. I've gone from Monaco to here, then I'm going to go back and watch uh, whatever I can of Indy. But I think I'm going to run out of time to try and watch all the things I wanted to, because yesterday was Champions League final as well. So I only got caught up on that as well this morning. Oh, yeah, that's right. I was wondering why people across the street were yelling so loud during the day. (laughs) (laughs) Now you know. Man, and we have the NBA, not to get completely derailed so early in the podcast, because that typically happens with Daly and I, but we're on the cusp of the NBA finals. And I feel like, Tim, you know, you and I were on a spaces conversation about eight months ago at on the precipice of the NBA season. And I, I predicted the Lakers would be in the finals. That sure didn't happen. But I seem to remember you predicting that the Warriors would be in the finals. And boy, did you nail that one. Yeah, I did. I I, I got that one, but I think I got the Eastern Conference uh finals wrong and i think i also got uh the team that was coming out of the east wrong as as well because i I chose the milwaukee bucks i believe if our memory serves correctly but in there they were eliminated a while ago so (laughs) hilarious so before we drop off and lose too much of our audience we should probably pivot back rotate the back end of this podcast into the turn that is the monaco Grand Prix. It was an eventful race for a number of different reasons. Before we jump into the race, because there's tons to talk about, we should probably revisit qualifying quickly. For the second year in a row, Charles Leclerc, his home race, qualifies on pole. And for the second year in a row, it wasn't because of, I would say it was because of an eventful uh, mishap on the track. Last year, of course, he crashed his car, ended up damaging the gearbox that we didn't know about until the race was about to begin, didn't race at all. This year, Approaching the tunnel, Sergio Perez goes into the wall, signs make contact with him, qualifying's over, but not before Charles Leclerc puts in a blistering 111-376 to take pole. Gentlemen, any thoughts, any reflections on qualifying this weekend? Because 
as we know so often, this is the most important part of a weekend at Monaco. Yeah, I mean, qualifying, I think, for Monaco is always the most exciting part of uh, the whole weekend in terms of the on-track spectacle, because usually we, you know, normally we don't really get a super exciting uh, Grand Prix. But, you know, that being said, we'll we'll obviously break that down in a little minute here. But I, I think if we just take a look at, like, how dominant the, the Ferraris were not only in qualifying, but also in practice as well. I mean, Charles Leclerc dominated P1, P2. Uh, Sergio Perez was quicker than him in, in P3. And, you know, if you go back to the Spanish Grand Prix, and if we just take a look at that final sector, um, you, you know, we can take a look and see that, you know, Ferrari was the fastest in that sector and Red Bull was second and Alfa Romeo was third. And usually we kind of use that as a, sort of a barometer to kind of measure who will be quick in Monaco. And in Charles Leclerc, I mean, was due for a win at his, at his home race. And so starting off the weekend, you know, he's, he started off super strong. I mean, his pole lap, but he was about like three tenths uh, further ahead uh, of his teammate, Carlos Sainz in Q3. I mean, his pole lap was that far. And, and obviously I know that, um, the ending of qualifying did get spoiled because of what happened with Sergio Perez and Carlos Sainz. But I mean, at the, at the end of the day, that's still a monster number and it's still, still uber quick. And obviously it's a shame how it ended for him. But I mean, going into all of this, I mean, I was, I was really excited for him. Yeah, you know, I mean, Tim, if you look at the Q3 times, uh, Charles's fastest time was 111.376. And then I know we got a, we have the disclaimer, of course, that they never really got that last fast lap off because Sturgio uh, stuffed it into the wall just before they went into the tunnel there. But it's interesting. You look, Carlos's uh, Q3 time was a 111.601. Sergio's was a 111.629. And Max's was a 111.666. So you got like six and a half hundredths of a second covering those next three cars. And then you go back to Lando, who qualified P5. His his time was a 111.8. Uh, eight four uh, eight four nine. Pardon me. So I mean, you drop off another quarter of a second, and then everyone beyond that is already into the one twelves. And then Esteban Ocon, who rounded out the top ten, he was already at one thirteen point oh four point oh four five. So I mean, they start to spread out. So I mean, just that that really small delta between Sainz, Perez, and Verstappen is is amazing. But then you put into the the the, the context that that Charles was that much further ahead of them is uh, is just incredible. And even though like Max was doing a uh, push cool push because I think for for him and that soft tire and what Red Bull started to notice was that you know that second push lap on on that particular tire for them at this race um, they were still able to eke out quite a bit of lap time because that first sort of initial run is kind of like just scrubbing the tire a bit, which was actually quite interesting because I didn't really think that there would be much life left in these soft tires after that, that first run. But with that Red Bull, I mean, it did a really impressive job, like keeping that tire alive and, and, and Max going even quicker on his final attempt. And so we don't know where he would have ended up in qualifying, but it's just interesting to note, like as we start to move forward, in this season. And like I've, I've pointed out before, it's like this Red Bull is just really good with its tires. 
Oh, amazing. Especially, I mean, we'll get to it eventually, but if you look at how the the, the latter stages of this race uh, developed, is you had the, both the Red Bulls on the mediums and the both Ferraris on the hard tires, and it, it was just, it was interesting how they, they were actually able to, you know... I guess, protect and preserve those tires, the two Red Bulls. I mean, it didn't really give them a huge advantage over the Ferrari, but I was just wondering, are they going to be able to make this last till the end of the race? But anyhow, getting ahead of myself here a little bit. Mark, back to you, sir. No, it's all good. And I have a question. So I want to preamble this a little bit, but when I was a kid, I used to always love picking up the newspaper long before the internet, especially during baseball season, pull up the box score. And I'd love to go see who scored an RBI, a home run, what their batting average looked like. And even today with Formula One, I love to grab the race classification, get a sense of how people perform if we practice one and Q1, Q2 and Q3. However, unlike baseball, where the box scores don't really lie, there isn't a lot to unpack from that. In Formula One, there can often be some deception. And Tim, this is a question for you. So I pull up race classification. We all watched. We know Lance didn't get out of Q1. Really disappointing because of course, Seb got all the way to Q3. Nicholas Latifi, I think he finished six tenths or a half second off of his teammate, Alex Albon. Given that this is admittedly both Canadian shows, any thoughts or reflections on the struggles that Lance encountered in Q1? Is there something that is deceiving about that Q1 time? Something that should be I would say promising or encouraging despite the slow time. Your thoughts on the performance of the Canadian drivers in Q1? Yeah, for sure. I mean, looking at uh for Lance in particular in in that Q, you know, in that Q1 performance of of his, I mean, he he had a huge moment at, at uh swimming pool, like huge. And that was on his final uh push lap. And then obviously we we heard him on the radio like screaming. <laughs> Uh, and that had every right to, because in all honesty, this is a, this is a, this B spec Aston Martin is a good car. Like I think they've really got, they've really got something here guys. And, and I think he even knows, he knows for that he had a Q3 car on, on his hands. He even admitted it after, after qualifying. And so I think for for Lance, you know, th- this was a tough one because obviously then it goes on to affect his race, you know, as well. Obviously, I mean, th- th- with Monaco, it's all about w- where you qualify to give yourself uh, any chance of getting a good result and scoring some points. I mean, you have to qualify close to that, right, or in the points, and that's basically how that kind of works out. So, I mean, that that's a tough one for Lance. I mean, you can't make you can't make mistakes like he can't be making these type of mistakes at this point. Right. And I do understand that. Yes, this is a basically a new car and he's still kind of coming to grips with it. But I mean, he could have scored some really good points this weekend. He re- he really could have. And as for, for Nicholas, I mean, man, he is not, he does not look comfortable sometimes in this car uh, at all. Um, the amount of, uh, steering inputs that <clears throat> he has to put into to turning the car. I mean, if you, if you look, it's not like one steering input, there's a couple and you know, that, that could speak to maybe this car needs a, this, this car could need a new steering rack. It could need a new steering column that benefits him and his driving style. And there's not a lot of downforce on this car either. I mean, it's fast in a straight line, but in terms of, cornering and downforce. I mean, it just doesn't, it's not there. It doesn't have it. But at the end of the day, I mean, I mean, for Nicholas, it's just trying to get that confidence. I mean, hmm. when he started the weekend, he was so far off, Alex, it wasn't even funny, but once he got to qualifying, it kind of looked like he dialed himself back into it. 
so that we know going into the race weekend, going into Sunday, Ferrari then had locked out the front row. They look to be in a position to score some major points to take a big bite out of Red Bull's lead in the constructors. As you just described a couple of minutes ago, Mr. Daly, Charles Leclerc qualifies on pole, followed closely by Carlos Sainz, Sergio Perez, Max Verstappen, Lando Norris with a beautiful Q3 performance, lands him in the top five, followed by George Russell, Fernando Alonso, Lewis Hamilton, Sebastian Vettel, and Esteban Ocon. Now, moments before, moments before this race is ready to take shape and moments before the the pit lane's about to open, we start to see some water spitting down on this track, some dark clouds move in. And despite the fact that the air temperature was 22 degrees and it was a relatively mild 30 degrees on the track itself, the rain clouds opened and we got a torrential downpouring of rain. And immediately, especially on social media within the commentators and the analyst world, there was criticism of how the FIA, the stewards and the race directors ultimately waited almost an hour before they got this race underway. Initially, it was red flag. They eventually got it going. It wasn't a standing start. Tim, from your perspective, were the stewards offside? Were they being cautious correctly? Should they have gotten this race started a little bit earlier? Yeah, a little bit too cautious. I think that you've you they could have started this thing uh, at its scheduled time, and as the weather got worse, then they could have thought of like red flagging it then. But at the at the moment when it was scheduled to go, it wasn't that bad. Like the weather was not that bad, and you know, Martin Brundle always says it best, right? Where he says, you know, the throttle works both ways on and on and off. Right. But that's what, and that's what we tune in to watch, right? Like we tune in to watch the best drivers in the world compete against each other in all different forms of conditions. Right. That's why we watch. And because we want to see the skill, we want to see them dance these cars through torrential downpour and have success or flirt with the, you know, flirt with danger at some points. I mean, that's why we watch, I mean, to watch how skilled these racing drivers are. And so, yeah, I think they, they should have let this thing go lights out on its scheduled time. Daly, what do you, what do you think? Yeah, totally. I mean, because it became the predictable story of, uh, okay, well, how long are they going to stay on full wets? How soon are they going to go to enters? And are some guys going to go from straight from wets to, 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 to slicks? And how's that going to work? Because it really changed the strategy and, and flipped it uh, on its head because you had guys coming in and then coming in again in a very short amount of time. And I guess ultimately that's what really determined and flipped up the the, the running order with the with the top four or five cars there because it, it got a little bit chaotic. And and I mean, once they got, they, they got ra- uh, racing, I mean, I know they did a couple of formation laps. Uh, once the they actually went to racing and the track was mm-hmm. green, I mean, it was predictable almost. You, you could see that dry line starting to form on the track mm-hmm. w- within a couple of laps. I mean, you could see that slightly, that different uh, discoloration where the cars were actually like on, on the racing line and then predictably up, up up at the top of the hill, maybe it's a little bit warmer, maybe a little bit more direct sunlight. You could see that dry line probably within about 10 laps. And it wasn't just a little bit damp. It was actually dry pavement up there. But but even if you go back, right, right Dan, I mean, if we go back to the start, I mean, even the fact that it was a uh, a rolling start is still a little... It's still a little too cautious. I mean, why wasn't this a standing? Why wasn't this a standing start? Uh, I mean, they they could have gotten away. They showed that they could get away on the formation lap. So why why not a standing start? I mean, 
you're actually putting more drivers in jeopardy by doing a rolling start because now you have more speed heading towards T1 instead of doing a standing star, we have less speed heading towards T1. Like it just doesn't totally make any sense. Well, you know, that's the conversation we had when we were watching the race at home here this morning was that, okay, they're going to do a couple of laps. They're going to get their tires up to speed. They're going to go, the safety car is going to go in the pits. They're all going to fly down the straightaway and somebody's going to come to grief at uh, San Devote there. And we're going to have a big, big pileup. And then the track's going to be, we're going to be a safety car, a red flag or something like that. But those first couple of laps, I mean, the field was uber cautious going around. I mean, nobody was really pushing it uh, very hard, I think, at least for the first uh, two or three laps that I noticed. Hammy, I don't know if you saw that any differently than I did. No, I completely agree. And and let's be honest, P1 in in a lot of ways was, or sorry, FP1 in a lot of ways was kind of a write-off in and of itself because these drivers were feeling out this track for the first time in entirely new machinery. And, you know, we've talked with Tim in the past about the fact that one of the downsides of these cars is that they are really challenging to maneuver in sharp, slow, technical corners. And that's all Monaco is. So they kind of worked beyond that in FP1 and FP2. We started seeing them put in some faster laps. And by FP3, they were beginning to get pretty comfortable. But all of a sudden on Sunday, you throw in the rain. And again, they're still not super comfortable with this track. They're rocking it with 18 inch wheels, which means they've got diminished visibility. They're still challenged and struggling to get these big, heavy oversized formula one cars. And I, I know that's a, that's a controversial take, but they're struggling to get these big cars moving through these corners. And then all of a sudden you add in all of these moistures and the extreme wet tires, which they haven't really experienced this year for sure. They're going to be a little bit cautious, but Tim, I, I agree with your point and we'll get there in a minute. I was shocked that not only did they not start the race as a standing start, but when it was subsequently red flag, they didn't do a standing start. They yeah. did a rolling start, which was even more shocking to me because yeah. daily to your point, the track did dry out pretty quickly. And by the, that point, it was in a much, 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 much better state. So daily, you made a great point, which was the weather ultimately injected some strategy and some pit stop calls into this race that had a very significant impact on the outcome. So we saw Charles Leclerc, fantastic qualifying performance, puts it on pole for the second year in a row. And I was a little bit nervous for him. And I was quite anxious watching those first through laps, because despite the fact that he's got the clear air and he's not dealing with all the spray as every other car on that track was doing still a little bit anxious. Cause he was the one that was setting the pace, setting the tempo, feeling out the track. He had no line. He was picking the line. All the, everybody else was kind of following him, but he started putting in some masterful lap lap after lap after lap, but the race was then ultimately stolen from him. And it wasn't stolen because of a mistake that he made. It wasn't stolen from him because of a maneuver from another team. It wasn't stolen because there was a crash that backed up the field, but a strategy decision. So Tim, I'm going to flip this one over to you. Ferrari strategy mistake. Can we even begin to unpack what happened here? <laughs> oh, 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 doctor. Oh man, this is a big one, isn't it? I mean, let's let's take a look at like Ferrari's strategies as a whole since like <laughs> 2017 when Sebastian Vettel was in contention to win a championship and lo and behold, some of the races that costed him uh good positions that would have helped him in that championship so push yeah. race strategy came down to race strategy guys. And again, they haven't cleaned up a lot of those little mistakes that they make with race strategy. I mean, take your hat off to Red Bull 
because they always seem to get that strategy right, even though if it is risky, right? Because sometimes they do run some risky strategy calls, but it totally, pays off. Totally. Like they, yeah. they always get it to pay off. Or for Ferrari, it's a disaster. They try to roll the dice with some things, and it just literally blows up in their face. And it sucks if you're a Ferrari fan, and it sucks if like you're a Charles Leclerc fan, and they dropped the ball on Sunday in Monaco. Bringing Charles Leclerc in was not the call, right? They did the right thing in what Carlos Sainz wanted to do. He dictated what he wanted, right? He, he stayed out until there was a clear dry line, and he stayed out and he pushed that envelope to get to those slick tires, which not a lot of drivers did. There were some, but there weren't a lot. But for Carlos Sainz to do that, he actually did put himself in a position to win. There was some slow traffic on his outlap that uh, can be argued that cost costed him getting into the lead of the race, right? Like it could could have. There, there's an argument there for it. But then bringing Charles Leclerc in, like it just didn't make any sense. Like, why are you trying to double stack? Like, there's no. You don't need to do that at that moment, right? You, you, like, I I am not a race strategist. But even I knew at that moment, like. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. What, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> you know, it's funny, Tim, what you were saying, you were making those comparisons to Ferrari over the years. I was my first reaction was, a, dude, how far back in time do you want to go <laughs> with this one? Yeah. Because, I mean, if, if you look at like the, the, the top three teams, I don't think there's any debate here when it comes to, to the, the power rankings on strategy. It's Red Bull, Mercedes, and Ferrari. Red Bull gets it right pretty much all of the time, although some of those calls, like Tim said, are risky. Agreed. Totally Mercedes agreed. is not afraid to make those risky calls, but it always hasn't it hasn't always worked out when they needed to. And then Ferrari, just as we saw today, they sometimes do it, sometimes it works, but there's way too many times we're sitting there scratching our heads and throwing our hands up in the air with, in, in a WTF moment, right? And that's what we saw again 
today because I mean, Charles, I mean, I mean, his reaction, I think, was pretty much everybody else's that regardless if you're a Ferrari fan or a Charles Leclerc fan or not, I mean, if you just kind of look at the situation, see where he was and where he ended up, I mean, screaming with frustration into the radio was the correct reaction from Charles Leclerc. And then at the end of the race, when, uh, you know, and, and my wife made the great point when his engineer said, Charles, that's P4. She's like, why the hell did he need to tell him that? Because he's been behind Max. He's been behind Carlos. And he's been behind Checo for an hour and a half. He knows knows where he is and he's not been happy about it and charles he says no words i mean what else do you say yeah and just just to reinforce that as well not only was it not necessary to remind him of his final classification but to do it at a race that he was leading in in his home city is appalling and for those of you listening at home that maybe didn't see the race or weren't totally clear on what happened i'll quickly just recap this because we put it in the show notes uh thanks to our friends on reddit for helping us put this together on lap 16 ferrari agreed to keep carlos signs out with a plan to bring him in later for slicks they had originally told him to come in for interest he said no 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 i'll wait for slicks red bull then pitted both their inters for uh, bo- both of their drivers for inters. So Ferrari asked Sainz to box for inters on lap 18. Sainz refused again. So for two consecutive times, he refused mm-hmm. to go into inters, wanting to stay out for the slicks. He refused, indicating he wanted to stay out until he could get onto slicks. But then suddenly, the team asked Leclerc to come in for inters. So at this point, Sainz has already refused twice, indicating I want to stay out for slicks. They asked Leclerc to come in. As the race leader, he does. So he goes in, despite the fact that their strategists and the engineers and the team know that it's not necessarily the right move because they've already decided not to do that for science. So they then bring Leclerc for intermediates, but then they almost immediately bring him back within three laps for slicks. But they do so... The moment they brought in science. So it's almost like it was an unintentional double stack. And what we heard on the race radio was Charles Leclerc screaming at his engineer, bleep, bleep, what are you doing? And moments before that, his engineer was on the radio telling him to abort that pit stop. So they'd asked him to come in asked him to abort. But at that point, he'd already made the turn into the pit lane. So now he's approaching the box, surprised to see Carlos signs in the box in front of him. So now he's losing valuable time sitting there. He lost valuable time because he pitted for inters three laps before when the team knew that wasn't the right strategy decision. So signs goes out, gets stuck behind Mr. Latifi. Leclerc goes out. He loses first place, second place, third place and fourth place. Pretty atrocious. You know, it's interesting. I mean, you put in the notes, Mark, that the the weather didn't have a factor in determining the outcome of the race, but indirectly it did because we had that hour and 10 minute uh, delay and then ultimately the the two hour time limit comes into play. But because we had that uh, delay and then the rolling start and the the multiple formation laps behind the safety car and all that, we we didn't really have the evolution of a typical wet race, right? Where you're always going to get like 90% of the field is going to start on on full wets. You're going to get a couple of guys that are a little bit brave are going to go on to inters and then they're going to try a couple laps and then decide, okay, I'm going to stick with it because they're working or I got to go full wets. And then usually what happens is one really brave soul who's running in P18 or P19 goes in for slicks and then everybody kind of makes a judgment call on that. And then today we kind of sort of saw that a little bit, but then to me, it felt like it was a little bit of a game of chicken at the front between the Red Bulls and Ferrari as to who was going to blink first to either go from wets to inters or try and extend and go on to full dry tires. And it, it it was interesting. And then it just kind of goes back to that uh, conversation that we had when it came down to, to, to strategy and Red Bull. I mean, they were bold once again, and it worked out. I mean, their, their, their stops were pretty on point. 
point. I mean, in a, around the two and a half second mark, and then Ferrari just kind of a, a cascading, <laughs> rolling. Yeah, mess, a hot mess. I mean, not so much for for Carlos, but I mean, you got to give Carlos credit because he kind of made that bold call in the car from the cockpit, saying, "Yo, I'm going to extend. I'm going to keep out, and we're we're going from we're going to full uh, slick tires." So I thought it was a great move, and it paid off for him in the end. Good on Charles Leclerc for uh, not throwing his team completely under the bus, which he could have, right? I mean, let's let's face it. I mean, he could. <laughs> <laughs> he threw them right under the bus, yeah. But he, but he didn't. And I mean, I, th- I think at at that moment, you know, that's a sign of a very mature driver, um, and a driver who's fighting for a championship. And I think, like, he knows that. Obviously, he didn't get that Monaco Grand Prix win that he's so desperately wanted, but he's still in contention for this championship. Uh, he still needs to keep the team together. He still needs to motivate them. He still needs to. To, to make sure he's putting in the performances that's required to either keep, you know, keep that gap to, to a minimum to max in the championship or overtake him in the championship. Right. And so I think like for, for Charles Leclerc, I, th- I think at the end of this race, he, I, he said the right things. He did the right things. And, um, yeah, it's just, you got to feel so bad for this guy, man. Like I just like, God, 2018, he doesn't finish. 2019, uh, doesn't finish. 2021, doesn't even start. <laughs> On pole, doesn't even start. And then uh, doing the uh, the classics a few weeks ago, bins like a legendary Ferrari, like just bins it. Obviously, it wasn't totally his fault, but doesn't have the luck here, guys. <laughs> well, you know, and I mean, you make a great point there, Tim. I mean, it shows a lot of maturity uh, from, from Charles because, I mean, he could have come out and said almost anything that he wanted to, like, throw them under the bus, like you say. And I don't think anybody out there in F1 fandom would have uh, disagreed with that. But he's only, let's let's put it into perspective, he's only nine points behind Max in the championship. Max has 125 points. Charles has 116 points. We have, what, like 17 races to go or 16 races to go, something like that like that there's a lot of racing left to be done and i i think charles is looking at the, the the big picture and as much as he would love to have this jewel in the crown win at monaco or at least get a good result in his home race i think he'll take that in the short term but ultimately win this one i mean is, is obviously the one that he wants uh, for for himself but i think he just uh keeps a a little bit cool and uh well at least he completed the race <laughs> i mean so, yeah so let's after go from that there. notorious lap 22 pit stop we have Uh, A race order of Sergio Perez, Carlos Sainz, Max Verstappen, and Charles Leclerc. Now, just five laps later on lap 27, entering into the swimming pool complex, following behind an Alfa Romeo, Mick Schumacher has a very, very ugly crash. And we typically know it's an ugly crash because the race director will cut away and you won't see it until they're comfortable and confident that the driver is okay. So we had a few very scary moments where we know Mick had crashed. We saw a momentary glimpse of the car in pieces, and then they cut away. Fortunately, Mick was okay. He was able to walk away. He collided with the tech pro barriers that were, I would say, appropriately positioned in that complex, in that position, managed to absorb a lot of the impact. The car was torn apart, which obviously isn't ideal for a team like Haas that is operated on an absolute budget. It's understood they don't have a ton of replacement parts. They're going to be absolutely stretched thin getting a car ready for Baku in a couple of weeks. Tim, from your perspective, scary, scary crash. Were you surprised to see the rear half of that car disentangle so quickly? Oh, yeah, big time. 
uh, that that was a huge impact. I mean, just the way the car disintegrated, how it came apart, um, massive. Hearing from Mick after the race, he had said that he 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 got it a bit wrong in the, in the swimming pool, and it wasn't actually the braking or the engine braking. He actually was just offline. He said uh, by about ten centimeters. He said it wasn't much, and it was just it was just enough for him to lose lose grip. He said that's how easy it was, and. Hmm. And he was off and, and into the wall, and there wasn't much he he could do to kind of bring it back, obviously. But I, I mean, credit that they put the Tech Pro barrier where they put it. Credit the safety of Formula One and the safety and within racing because uh, that could have been a lot worse. Oh, totally. Yeah. I mean, it was uh, it was a scary moment, uh, like you guys say, but I thought it was interesting, too, because I think it was mentioned on the uh, on the broadcast that after Grosjean had that nasty accident in Bahrain a couple of years ago, that they did a redesign that that the, that yes. the rear portion of the car is yes, supposed to, to break off. off. Yeah. So, I mean, in that sense, it did what it was supposed to do. And then mm-hmm. when you saw it get uh, hoisted up uh, off of the track, out of the barriers yeah. there, you saw that the front wheels and suspension had broken away. I mean, the one thing that probably was uh, to mix a uh, benefit... Uh, uh, at least uh, for for the outcome of that crash was that because he probably did a couple of 360s before he hit the tech pro uh, barrier was he was able to scrub off uh, a, a fair amount of speed. But I mean, that's two pretty scary crashes that he's had this year. I mean, first he had it in Saudi several weeks ago and now this uh, week in in Monaco and Lake Hammy was just saying they don't have a ton of parts to, to go to Baku in a couple of weeks. So this is a team that's, that's hurting because I mean, they, they started so strong and not only did Mick not finish today, K-Mag didn't finish today as well, and which was, you know, I don't even know what the reason was, uh, but I didn't even notice that he was out of the race until they were showing some of the replays of Mick's uh, big, big accident there. And you see K-Mag walking up and down there in, in the pit, pit lane. I'm like, what the hell is he doing out of his car? I didn't even realize he'd, he'd retired. Yeah, Magnuson was uh, pulled out of the race for a power unit um, issue that he was uh, faced with during, during the race. But um, it, if we... If we look at it, I mean, like Haas, <clears throat> Gunther Steiner explained last week that they wouldn't be bringing like a serious upgrade until probably around France for their car. And when you have crashes like this, and what a lot of us are, are learning now is that, you know, you can't, you can't crash these cars. You just, you can't do it. There's not enough spare parts. These teams haven't made enough spare equipment for these new r- race cars under these new regulations. And so what's happening is, is that whenever these drivers are crashing, it's actually stalling their development race. And it's actually putting Hmm. them behind the eight ball because they have to push out more parts. I mean, we were, I was speaking with Mike Crack about this um, team principal at Aston Martin a few weeks ago. And Lance had, um, Lance had a crash in um, Australia. So did Seb. Uh, It was expensive weekend for them as a team. And they had their factory working like 24-7 just to try and get parts to that car, but also get parts ready for that this B-spec car that Aston Martin had. And they were they, they didn't even know if they were going to make their deadlines. Like they were, it was crazy to talk whether or not they were going to make the deadlines. And so a crash like this for for Haas is a serious thing. It's going to set them, it will set them back. Now, whether or not it'll interfere with upgrades that they have coming for for I believe it's France. I mean, who knows? It's it's hard. It's hard to say, but it could. I mean, it could. This is not a huge team we're talking about here, guys. Like, and for Mick as a driver, finally starting to get his confidence back after what 
happened in Saudi Arabia and just has another massive impact, like bins the car. Like the thing is tubbed for sure. It's got to be. Yeah. And so I think for Mick as a driver of this season, I mean, it's been tough, guys. I mean, it has not been a great season for Mick Schumacher. Right? I would just say, I literally would say he's had two good races this season. One of them was my, one of them was a bit of Miami and the other, the other one being in Spain. And I only say that because he was getting closer to, to K Mag in terms of uh, the lap delta. Yeah, well, I think it's interesting. Yeah, sorry, Hammy. I was just gonna say, I think it's interesting, too, because I'll I'll just uh, say this uh, real quick, because I think Gunther was saying after the race that, um, you know, basically in a couple of one liners that we'll have to see where we go from here with Mick. I mean, just to sort of paraphrase. So, you know, there's a couple of guys that uh, seem to be on the hot seat now for, you know, where they're going to be next year. And and, and we just talked about it within the last couple of weeks on our own pod here that, uh, you know, Mick's, you know, know, is is he coming? Is he one of those guys in that conversation? I think, you know, it's becoming more and more apparent that he is. I think Ricardo is. I mean, anytime that those conversations or comments come out from your team principal that, you know, well, we have mechanisms to get out of a deal and so does he and the expectations aren't being met on both sides. Once those sort of comments be start being thrown out there by a team principal, regardless who the driver is, the sort of, I guess, the internal possibilities to, to to motivate and solve things kind of becomes I wouldn't say desperation but when it, when it comes to the the, the, the public thing it's all, I almost wonder if there's a bit of strategy as well if I can't motivate this dude to do what he needs to do you know privately maybe you know publicly will maybe motivate him by fear to get his job done or, or maybe not so I, I think Mick's going to be on the hot seat and there, there's, there's a couple other guys there I mean can pull off probably three or four names without uh, too much effort here guys Daily, the only thing I would add to that, and, and I agree with everything you just said there, is boy, has the narrative on Mick Schumacher changed quickly. You know, it was 12 months ago that we were openly talking about how quickly Ferrari would find a way to, to graduate him into the senior team. And I think the conversation now is based on his performances in the back half of last year. And with a couple of exceptions this year, the entirety of the season, what is he going to need to do to keep a seat in Formula One? period. And just kind of reinforce the struggles that Haas has had. Obviously, they had that beautiful surprise fifth place finish by K-Mag in the opener in Bahrain. In the last five races, they've had one points finish. They've scored two points. So the season that seems so optimistic and so positive for this team has certainly gone downhill. And just to build on something that you said, Tim, as well, it's not just a matter of capacity with those factories, right? Which, hey, we're going to have to delay some upgrades because we've got to rebuild the gearbox. It's a matter of, we have $140 million to spend this year. If we have to keep rebuilding our existing spec cars, maybe mm-hmm. we just can't deploy any upgrades because we don't have the capital left in the budget to allow us to do that. And, that, and that's a cap That's a cap that's getting quickly eaten into because of escalation for everything. Uh, or, sorry, excuse me, inflation yep. over everything. I mean, Total Wolf talked about it on our media call with him on on Saturday of just about how like the teams need them to kind of increase the budget cap for the season because of all of the inflation that's been going on and freight and how much it's actually costing them to ship everything around now. And so, you know, you, you go to a team like Haas, I mean, they're, they're, you know, their budget's probably not that huge. I highly doubt they're getting close to 130 million guys. I really doubt it. And so now you have a car that, you know, Schumacher's written off like that. That car is going straight to the dumpster. I mean, <laughs> and, I, and I don't mean to sit here and bash on uh, on Mick. I mean, I just but no, he's, it's true. He's there, extremely there's, talented. There, there's nothing coming out of that car. It's it's a write off, like you no, say. Absolutely not. Yeah, hundred yeah, percent. It's a paperweight. And so I think at the the end of the day, I think like I mean for for Mick as a driver, 
uh, he's always started slow and gotten fast, but he's also never had a teammate like Kevin Magnuson. I mean, who was, you know, his teammate last season is Nikita Mazepin. I mean, and Mazepin's, you know, they're learning as well at the same time and, you know, mix getting his confidence boosted by, you know, beating up on him for sure. Right. <laughs> so, and then in comes Kevin Magnuson and literally blows the doors off of him in, in round one, like Magnuson was on another planet. Right. And unfortunately for Mick, it just takes him that just that little bit longer. And he's not the only driver, like you said, daily. I mean, there are like other drivers that are really struggling with these new regulations. And I think like you just, all you have to do is just take a look at the lap deltas between teammates after sessions and just seeing that gap and seeing you can literally see it, like who all these drivers are. And it's the same, it's the same group every single weekend, wherever we go. Sometimes it switches just a tiny bit, but Mm -hmm. not really. And that being said, like that is a clear sign that, some of these drivers are struggling with the regulation, figuring out their driving style for it and getting the car dialed into something that they're comfortable with. And everybody would be like, well, they're formula one drivers. Oh, they should figure out. But well, the thing is, is that they can't go and they, they can't go and push these cars like a lot. They can't go and put these cars on the limit because if they destroy the cars, it ruins the development. And so these drivers are having to like tiptoe, around and try to sort of push to that limit like they can't automatically go to it because they know if they destroy the car it's it's set the whole team back so that's it's a really difficult learning phase for a lot of these drivers and yeah i mean it's it's tough it's really tough we foreshadowed earlier in the podcast that this would result in a red flag it did result in a red flag everyone's back to the pits. And then the surprise outcome was, you know, I'm sitting there as a viewer thinking, look, without this red flag, without a safety car, we're probably going to see a procession for the rest of the race. It's going to be close amongst the top four, but it's very unlikely that unless one of those drivers makes a mistake or there's a subsequent pit stop issue, we're likely going to see those four race leaders finish in that order. Surprisingly to everyone, the stewards, the race director decide they're going to have a rolling start. It's not going to be a standing start. The race gets underway. And then from the top four upwards, we see very little or no movement until the end of the race, ultimately. Obviously, and we won't have time to get into it now necessarily, but there was a little bit of noise about the fact that Fernando Alonso was going at an excruciatingly low pace, trying to keep as much life into those medium tires as possible so he could get to the end of the race. Upset pretty much everyone behind him from eight down the order. Yeah, but, here, but, but why? But please, why, please. right? No, no, but look, this is my thing. Is like, why would why would Fernando just move out of the way? Like he's exactly driving a race car. Yeah. He's frigging competing. Why is he just going to move? Like I, I get like yeah. people get upset, like, but he's not just going to be like, oh, oh, you take it, Lewis. I'm not, I don't want this points paying position. Like, yeah. What do you think he's going to do? Yeah. It's, like, a, it's a ridiculous argument. Meaning for Fernando's got two responsibilities. The first responsibility is to, to bring his car home in the best position possible and take those points or whatever it is. And then his second uh, responsibility is for, for the benefit of the team and, and, you know, help his teammate out if, if, if he needs to, he doesn't have to like go faster or let Lewis Hamilton buy or let Danny Ricardo buy or Sebastian Vettel no. buy just because he's trying to preserve 
preserve their, their tires? I mean, that's, 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 if he does, he's not doing his job. I mean, if I was a team principal and I had to, some, you know, a driver come back and say, oh, my tires were going off, I thought it'd be just better to let Lewis pass because he was faster than me. You know, I'd be like, dude, you shouldn't even be here if that's your mentality. So I, I thought he that was- He wouldn't be there. Yeah. They, they would be, he'd be let go. He would yeah. be fired immediately. Totally. Like, they would replace him with Oscar Piastri. That's how that would go. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Listen. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at marines.com. Listen, I wasn't trying to skip over this topic because I'm member number 347 of the Lewis Hamilton fan club of British Columbia and Greater Vancouver. I promise you that. But I would add this. His pace was significantly slower than it probably shouldn't have been. And he couldn't have afforded to do that on any other track in the calendar because he would have been overtaken. The unique circumstances of this track enabled him to carry that pace. But of course, you're not going to move over for Lewis Hamilton, who's one of his absolute mortal enemies on this planet and maybe mortal enemies is a little bit strong but they are fierce it's not too fierce much far off of it <laughs> yeah they're, exactly. right. they're, they're competitors man like yeah. they're competitors yeah so so daily i was just going to say i i know we've got to wrap this one up we've you we get the safety car lap 27 red flag race restarts Ultimately, we don't see a ton of movement in the championship order than race classification. Maybe you want to take us down the final race classification because the driver who ultimately won this has not had a lot of mention so far and probably deserves some flowers for being able to wrap this one up. Well, totally. Was uh, was Checo Perez wins this one, being the first Mexican driver to win at Monaco in the history of Formula One. And now he's the most successful Mexican uh, Formula One driver ever, which is, uh, which is amazing and a phenomenal achievement uh, for, for him. And he's totally pumped about it. And you can tell because his tires were starting to go off towards the end of the race. I mean, we got some of those super slow-mo shots uh, of Chaco's front tires. They were starting to grain a little bit. And in those last several laps, I mean, if we didn't have that uh, that two-hour time limit coming into effect, I mean, Carlos could have had uh, you know a real opportunity to make a run at him and maybe pass him. I mean, Carlos was complaining afterwards that when they came to lap Nick Latifi coming into Raskas or come through the pool and then coming to Raskas, I mean, Nick was kind of like in the wrong place. I'm mean, like, Nicky, move out of the way. And I think he tried to as, as, as best he could. And Carlos felt that that impacted any opportunity he might have to make a move on uh, on, on Checo. But I think that maybe Charles was maybe impacted most of all. But they were really kind of compressed there towards the end. But Sergio hung on, and I think it's a it's a great result uh, for for him. And then I think as a uh, as a sort of a, a footnote to all of this, because I mean, if you go down through the the, the final uh, race classification, you have uh, Checo winning, Carlos Sainz coming in P two, Max Verstappen. I wouldn't say in an anonymous P three, but by Max's standards, was a fairly quiet afternoon. I mean, he did what he needed to do, and um, he didn't really have to. Well, I mean, yeah, he didn't really have to fight off uh, everyone. Was obviously, didn't really get enough to really push Carlos. 
close. Charles, as we mentioned, came home uh, P4. Fifth and sixth was uh, George uh, Russell for Mercedes and Lando, who kind of came out of nowhere and really closed up on uh, on, on uh, Lando, or sorry, on George in those last several laps. Fernando, uh, seventh, uh, Lewis, eighth, uh, ninth was uh, Valtteri Bottas for Alfa Romeo, which was another good uh, uh, outing for him. And then Sebastian Vettel bringing home uh, the Aston Martin for a single point, which I think was... Uh, Pretty well deserved uh, for him, considering he got the car into Q3 on a notoriously uh, difficult track. And then on the driver's standings, uh, we have, uh, as we mentioned earlier, Max is still on top with 125 points. Charles with uh, 116 points in second. Sergio's third with 110. So that's pretty tight up at the top there, boys. I mean, if uh, you know Sergio can close that gap between uh, himself and Max a little bit, I mean, there's only 15 points between them, then I think it makes it uh, kind of a really interesting to see where this whole Red Bull discussion on team orders goes. Then you have George Russell in fourth, Carlos uh, Sainz in fifth. There's only a point between Carlos and George now. And then uh, Lewis, he's, uh, what, about 33 points behind Carlos Sainz, sixth in the world championship. So that's a big uh, gap there. Uh, Constructor side is uh, Red Bull on top with 235, uh, Ferrari second with 199, Mercedes third, 134 points, then McLaren with uh, fourth, 59, and then Alfa Romeo rounding out to the top five with 41 points so it's looking pretty interesting and before we wrap it up guys i just wanted to just throw this one out here for this uh, discussion there was uh, during the race there after max's pit stop we never really got a good view of it uh, other than the in-car camera and then uh, subsequently ferrari protested that max drove over the the, the painted line at the pit lane e- exit there like I said, we didn't get a really good definitive view. It looked like from the in-car camera, he did cross over that line. Ferrari protested it after the race. I couldn't help but feeling that it was a bit of a makeup to try and see if they could get anything, you know, help Charles out after that blunder in the pit stops. But I think there was a little bit of something to it. And I was thinking that it was a bit strange because considering every single corner on every single Formula One track has like 89 cameras at it or you know, pointed at it that we didn't get a better view of uh, that incident. Tim, uh, what, what did you make of that uh, that that whole ordeal, well, ordeal incident? Let's call it an incident. Let's go with that. Yeah, I mean, like Matteo Bonotto said it best, I guess, during that Sky Sports uh, interview. You know, I, I get the FIA uh, notifications um, to my email, um, and there's a lot of them. <laughs> but, uh, in in the race director's notes, it actually does say like has to stay to the right. Um, and so I could I understand that he was looking for for clarification uh, from it, um, but you know, reading the statement afterwards when the race stewards, uh, the teams met, they all agreed that. You know the Red Bulls did stay to the right of the yellow line. There wasn't there wasn't any conclusion that stated that they actually were over the yellow line. They were on it. They weren't over it though. And so there again, right with that massive rule book that we always kind of talk about, right? There's all this gray area in it where it's like, well, he wasn't all the way to the right of the yellow line. Yeah, but he wasn't. He wasn't all the way to the left of it either. So, (laughs) (laughs) right. So that's like again. So I mean, at the end of the day, that's basically what it what it had said. Um, but yeah, I mean, if you're Ferrari, I mean, you got to try, right? You got to try whatever you can. Totally, because I mean, if they give uh, Max like a five second time penalty, then Charles gets onto the podium, and then you know he's slightly less angry this evening than he was. Uh, you know, <laughs> at least he's on the podium at that point. It's not the top step, but you know, he's still top three, which is which is uh, maybe better than than, than nothing. So anyhow, and one one last thing, just about. Uh, 
Nicholas Latifi uh, during that formation lap. Uh, he had said that something actually went wrong with the throttle pedal. Uh, uh, it actually was on when he was going into uh, the hairpin, and that's why he went he went straight on because obviously. Oh. When when you're braking and the and the and the throttle pedal is active, you get a ton of understeer, and that's literally what 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 happened to him. So just a just a so everyone knows that. Um, I'm just trying to look at my notes here. Some of the drivers I heard from from afterwards. I mean, but Esteban Ocon. Oh yeah, here's here's okay. I know you got to take off daily, but <clears throat> Hamilton and Ocon racing incidents. Or did that deserve a penalty? I didn't think it deserved a penalty because I thought that Lewis was behind him and I thought that he he wasn't even alongside him trying to go into San Devot there. So I thought, well, why is he getting, you know, why is Esteban getting, uh, you know, penalized for that? I thought it was more of a racing incident than causing an accident. And then when, when I saw that it came up from the race director that it was being investigated, I thought, well, that seems a little bit harsh. I thought maybe yes. it was one of those incidents that should have been like noted or whatever the vernacular is uh, by, by, by the race stewards. I was just like, investigated for, for, for what? I don't, Hammy, what do you think? I agree. I agree. I just had to make sure my mic was turned on there, uh, but I completely agree. I, I I had the same sensation when the notification came up on the broadcast. I'm like, what are they investigating here? And and I get it that I think the stewards, the race directors this year feel, especially in the shadow of last year, that they need to be by the book and that they need to investigate things and they need to be clear and transparent. But I thought that was pretty clearly a racing incident. I totally agree. Totally. I mean, they're setting this. They're setting the, the. They're setting a sort of a dangerous precedent, guys. I mean, like. Now, anything like, I mean, Lewis wasn't like right beside him going into the corner. Yeah, well, and exactly. He no, he wasn't. I mean, he was alongside and, his rear, right rear tire and he clipped his front wing because of it. And yeah, uh, it seemed pretty. And when, yeah. and, and whenever in racing, do you ever, do you ever see that? Right. Like in, in racing, it is known like as a driver that if the guy is right beside you, then yes. Okay. And you guys make contact then sure enough. But if he's in your blind spot or if he's behind you, it, it's your corner, man. Like it yep. is your, yep. like that was, it's Esteban Ocon's corner. Like I don't, yep. like there are some things here that I've just like, they are, they're treading a thin line here for other teams for something similar to happen later on this season to bring this up. Right. And it could impact, it could impact Lewis later. You know what I mean? Like we mm -hmm. just, we don't know. So it's kind of like you're starting to set these precedents again. And it's like, come on, right? I, I don't know. I still, I still like to see drivers solve it for themselves out on the track and not have the stewards get involved. But uh, yeah, that's going to be an interesting one. Um, shout out to Lando Norris. That guy's still trying to recover from uh, tonsillitis, and uh, he's not a hundred percent. He said, uh, heard from him on Saturday, but one hell of a performance in qualifying. Guys, one hell of a performance. There was only a few tenths off of uh, science in second. Like, it was only a couple tenths. Like, really great job from him. Uh, and I thought, yeah, he drove a hell of a race. Same with George Russell. He was, Absolutely. Yeah. He was pretty awesome today as well. Yeah. George Russell, again, getting in the top five. Well, they're, they're kind of in a bit Unreal. of funny sort of... Um 
netherworld almost. I mean, they they obviously weren't as quick as the top four, but they were. I mean, obviously behind them was Fernando Alonso that was uh, you know adequately holding up the rest of the field, but they were kind of uh, all by themselves. But still, when they told Lando or sorry, uh, yeah, Lando to speed up at the end there and try and have a go at George, I was surprised <laughs> how quickly he closed that gap because he was four or five seconds behind. Then all of a sudden, I think he finished like a quarter second behind George at the end. I mean, ultimately, obviously he didn't pass him, but uh, the fact that he closed that gap so quickly was like, oh my gosh, how much did he have left in the tank? That was amazing. <laughs> That was pretty the, cool. The dark side of Lando's performance in qualifying and during the Grand Prix, once again, is it helps to illustrate how how much Daniel Ricardo has struggled this year. And I think all of us are, are big fans of Daniel, the personality, the charisma, mm, the energy, absolutely. everything that he brings to Formula One on and off the track. Everything off the track is still there, but unfortunately, the on-track performance has been really, really poor yeah. this year, qualifying practice and the race. Uh, he did move up one position this race. Uh, he ended up in P13, but again, not a great outcome for him, especially given the fact that his teammate was fighting for P5 for most of this race. So, totally. Tim. Yeah, just one more thing. Sorry about that. You know, you make a great, great point. Um, and one of the things that I'm starting to notice, and we can use Daniel Ricardo as an example, uh, same with Sergio Perez, is that these cars are really starting to favor drivers who are like really smooth. Mm-hmm. And there is a for you know for for those who, who don't know, there is a huge difference in driving styles between being smooth, aggressive. Uh, hustling the braking zones or hustling the corner entry, all that kind of stuff. And for the drivers who are like silky smooth, like, you know, the Jensen buttons, um, Sergio Perez is another one. Cause everyone's always like, they call him the tire whisperer. Well, there's a reason why, right? He's not hard on the tire. That means he's smooth with the car, right? He doesn't, he doesn't really aggressively drill the brakes into the braking zone. Uh, he doesn't aggressively mash on the throttle as he's leaving you know, the corner, he's really smooth with how his steering inputs on corner entry to apex, good with min speed as well. And, you know, a lot of those drivers who are really smooth like that are doing really well with these, these types of cars that generate uh, downforce um, from tunnels un- underneath, not like last year's cars where it was a little bit different. So mm-hmm. just, just one of those things to look out for, because like you can now start to tell the drivers who are very aggressive in those braking zones or who really attack and hustle the corner entries, those are the guys who are who are struggling at the moment. Yeah, that's interesting. That's a really good take. Tim, before we wrap this up, you had teased at the beginning of the podcast that you want to talk a little bit about the outcome of today's Indy 500 race, a oh, huge yeah. day for Marcus Erickson. It seems like <laughs> F1 drivers are having a big impact in North America in this series. But my friend, before we wrap this up, I want you to take it away because I'm really eager to hear your your take and your analysis from today's Indy 500. Oh my God. So like, obviously like my background is a big part of it is an, is an IndyCar. Um, you know, obviously I was a part of the Renault development program back in the day for, for Formula One. Um, but yeah, you know, Champ Car at the time really accepted me with open arms and uh, they helped me a lot get, get into the series. And so obviously a huge uh, IndyCar fan. Um, the race today was spectacular, man. Like just seeing that event, over 300,000 people in attendance, nice full grandstands, one hell of a race. Um, the Chip Ganassi car, it, it was quick in a straight line. And I think for, for Pato, you know, speaking with him afterwards, the, the car wasn't like it was trimmed out as much as it could, but they're still missing some straight line speed um, from that Aero McLaren um, machinery. And I think, 
I think Pato had that one chance to 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 win it, but just couldn't just couldn't get it done. Couldn't hold on to it. Um, it was exciting though. You know, I'm 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 happy. Uh, I'm happy to see a good race, and uh, I'm happy for Marcus Erickson. I mean, this is a guy again, like. He, you know, he was a little tongue tongue in cheek, but during, you know, his media availability, just, he kept saying like, Hey, not bad for, for a pay driver. (laughs) So if you go back to like his time in like formula one, right? Like everyone always gave him a hard time. Like, Oh yeah, this pay driver coming into F1. He's, he's a good driver. He was, he's very good, very talented and never really had the pieces of equipment that he needed to make himself, you know, shine. Uh, and you can say that about a lot of Formula One drivers who just never get that opportunity because the equipment's just not geared towards them. But sure, you know, hats off to Marcus Erickson, man, coming over to America, learning open wheel racing over here. Um, it is a little different. Uh, it's a little more, I don't know, barbaric, I guess you would say. It's it's a lot more dangerous. Uh, but <clears throat> working hard and and finding his way, and I think working hard is is like a key statement for for him that defines Marcus Erickson because he's just a hard worker and he'll never he will never let anyone outwork him. He he will be the last guy at the track. He will be the last guy in the engineering department. He will not be outworked. And I have huge, huge respect for that. Yeah, same here. Love that. This is a guy who uh, won two races last year. He won in Detroit, won in Nashville, just missed, just missed another victory at Mid-Ohio. So this is his third win. I think this is his second podium this year. He missed, just missed a podium last week, but it's great to see. And Tim, I very much remember those criticisms of him being a pay driver, first with Caterham and later with Sauber. And again, that was in a very dark period for Sauber before the Alfa Romeo money came in. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were a low, low, lowly performing team, but great to see a good guy like Marcus Erickson, who puts in the work, like you described, being successful on this side of the Atlantic. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, one final thing on that is it's that like th- this isn't this isn't an easy series. You know, like IndyCar is hard. Like these guys are these guys are incredible drivers. Like Scott Dixon could come into Formula One and win championships. No problem. And he probably still could do it. Like that's how good Scott Dixon like is. And these guys are, you know, all competing against each other. Like, ask Roman Grosjean just how competitive IndyCar is. Like, ask, just go ask him. Like, he'll tell you. Like, he'll he'll tell you just how hard IndyCar is is to be good and to win. You know, from first place to twentieth place, separated by like five tenths. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that, that that's incredible. When, when you look at it, when you, when you break down like that gap between it, I mean, that is amazing. And when you hear like a guy like Roman Grosjean, who's obviously seen it from from both sides of the co- the coin now, that, that that says a lot. And I mean, I, I don't think there's any suggestion out there, like uh, in in Formula One, or sorry, maybe not just in Formula One, but in in racing fandom in general, that uh, that that IndyCar is an easy series. But um, it, it just goes to prove that. You know, it's tough wherever you go, whenever you get to the top of whatever series it might be. Cool. 100%. All right, boys. I think this was a fantastic recap of an eventful weekend at Monaco. Obviously, we got a little bit of color and a little bit of insight into what was also a spectacular day at Indy. It was great to see. Oh, Tim, sorry. Tim, one, please. One more thing, guys. Uh, actually, want to get your thoughts on... Um, Monaco being back on the calendar for next season and it might not be. 
<laughs> you know, this is like the uh, the, the, the uh, evergreen discussion. It's like a track that I, I, I love and despise at the same time. And <laughs> as, as often as I'd love to see it like disappear from the calendar, as soon as it co- goes back every year and I see the cars racing around there, oh, you know, I kind of like it after all. You know, it's got the historic thing to it. And then I don't know, I'm just so torn, you know, because I mean, it is not suited to the cars or the cars are not suited to the track in this day and age. But, you know, I, I recognize like the, you know the value that it has to formula one so i i don't know i mean ask me today and i'll tell you a different thing tomorrow right <laughs> it just depends which way the wind is blowing look we talked about this on our last podcast at length and i went on a bit of a rant as well and i think <laughs> for some reason i, I the was floor is yours with, no no I was, I was siding with formula one as a business entity as if i was a shareholder in liberty and I, my point was like look they don't pay anything or they don't pay a lot in terms of sanctioning fee they get total control over the broadcast all of the advertising on the boards and in the banners and in the stands aren't actually oftentimes Formula One sponsors at all. They're localized sponsors that are specific to the organizing or the race body here. You know what? That's not necessarily fair to Formula One, but Formula One does have something that maybe it's never had before, which is a huge amount of leverage in negotiating with the race organizers in all different cities. Like this isn't exclusive to Monaco. This conversation isn't just happening here. It's happening in France and it's happening in Belgium. And to be perfectly honest, if Monaco dropped off the calendar for a year, I wouldn't miss it simply because there's so many other great races. Like when we're talking about a 22 or a 23 race calendar, there's going to be some really great stuff there. And I get it's historical relevance to the sport, but if I'm formula one and my duty is to show value to my shareholders and, and our ownership group, if I can squeeze the race organizers in Monaco for a better deal, I'm going to do that. And we know that they're willing to negotiate in the public realm because they did that with drive to survive. It wasn't that long ago that Stefano Domenicali was talking about the fact that, Hey, you know what, if we don't work out a new deal with Netflix, we could shop this somewhere else. And they're doing the same thing with the races now. So hmm. I'm sure that Monaco will find a way to secure its future. But I think that in doing so, Formula One, Liberty, the FIA need to have some serious conversations about what they can do to smooth out this track, to make it more compatible with the types of cars that we're seeing today. Because we saw this in daily, we talked about this in Yoss, they invested millions of dollars to reprofile a couple of major corners. Yep. In Australia, they invested millions of dollars to reconfigure that track. It's time. And I get it. People will say the infrastructure won't allow it. It's a city. There's sidewalks, buildings, blah, 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 blah. Figure it out. If you're going to host a Formula One race, a race in the greatest racing series on the planet, figure out a way. This isn't a right. It's a privilege to host a race, no matter how much money you're spending on it. Figure out a way to make racing better. Yeah. Well said. I totally agree with you. You know, I was, um, Speaking with Total Wolf about this on Saturday, I asked him about it and what he thought about, you know, should Monaco be on the calendar moving forward? Uh, And, you know, he had said to me, you know, he was biased, obviously, because he spends time there. He splits his time there. But on the other hand, you know, he was very understanding of the fact that like, hey, you know, we need to make money, right? We're in the, we're, we're, we're a big sport now. We can't be giving things away for free. And if like for instance we take a look at like canada right let's use canada guys as an example canada pays a lot of money to bring formula one to montreal we pay pay a lot Absolutely. of money and montreal or canadian canadian grand prix is like one of those historic races right it's, it's one of the ones that has to be on the calendar because of how long it's been there for uh the tradition of it and same goes for monaco obviously but 
they're not really paying anything. So it doesn't, that doesn't make sense, right? It doesn't really add up. So if I am a business owner, like if I own Formula One, I'm going to, I don't like, I wouldn't care about that tradition. I would, I would want to see the money in return. And yes, I agree that the track needs to be reconfigured somehow. And I'm sure they can find a way um, because these cars are just way too big for it. That there's way too big. Like you can't fit two of these cars going down some of these streets anymore. There's no way. Yeah. They're way too big. And so, yeah, I think there needs to be some configurations to the track. Like just figure it out, right? Absolutely. Two weeks from now, we are off to Baku, which is an incredibly high speed streets track. And a week after that, Tim Daly, I know you guys are both incredibly excited about this. Three weeks from today, we are back yeah. in Canada for the first time in three years. It's going to awesome. be obviously a very special event because we're going to have two Canadians on the grid. Lance Stroll is going to return. He raced there previously in 17, 18, and 19. Nicholas Latifi has tested there uh, in a Formula One car in the past. He's had a couple of free practice sessions, but this will be the first time that he will be on the starting grid. So for everybody listening in Canada, make sure you uh, make sure you buckle up for this one because mm-hmm. it's going to be incredibly exciting that for the first time, we're going to have two Canadians competing in a Formula One race in Canada. With that, gentlemen, thank you so much for joining. Tim, we're hoping, fingers crossed, you'll be able to join us once again, or we join you for two sure. weeks from now when we recap what should be a spectacular race in Baku, because those races have always been a little bit exciting, and there's often been some really, really great surprises. So with that, thanks everybody for listening. If you want to tune in, you can obviously follow the Scuderia F1 pod at Scuderia F1 pod on Twitter, on Instagram. You can follow Mark Daly at, at Mark Daly F1 on uh, Twitter. You can follow myself at Mark in Van City. Tim, if people are looking to follow you, connect with your podcast if they haven't already, where can they get connect with you? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Mark. Um, at Tim Haraney on all forms of social media, uh, H-A-U-R-A-N-E-Y. It's a hard one to spell. Um, and then also, yeah, TSN Racing Pod. You can get that wherever you get your podcasts or head to tsn.ca slash tsn-racing-pod to stream it. Um, we'll have some pretty exciting content coming out in lead up to the Canadian Grand Prix. Uh, we're going to be blowing that up pretty big, uh, on sports center and for TSN, uh, the week leading into the Canadian Grand Prix. Uh, so super excited for that guys. Like I'm really, really, really looking forward to it. Uh, the sport is massive in Canada. Now it's one of the biggest at the moment, uh, viewed on television. Uh, so yeah, this, this, uh, I've been working at this for quite a few years, uh, and at times it's felt like pushing water up a hill, <laughs> but uh, I, I am super stoked just to see how big this sport is becoming here. It's, it's great. Awesome. It's great. Yeah. 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 My friend, and nobody deserves more than you to be there and to relish the atmosphere and the excitement of a renewed Canadian Grand Prix. We look forward to it. Cannot wait to see you there. Cannot wait to hear your bites and all of the great insights and interviews you're able to pick up. With that, everyone, thank you so much. We will see you again on our podcast, the Skater F1 podcast is coming Thursday. We will be joined by Tim, or we will join Tim uh, two weeks from now when we recap the Azerbaijan Grand Prix from Baku. Until then, thanks for joining us. Bye everybody.